0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 3. One of the things that I posted on the city this week, so kind of getting your attention to, um, to focus on this coming year and, and goals that you have for this year and making plans to grow in your sanctification. Um, so I posted some things about reading plans and uh, challenge you to once again think through individual goals that you have, people that you want to spend time with this year how you're going to spend time in the bible, books that you're going to read, things that you can personally plan, things that you can be intentional about so the holy spirit can use those things to grow you this year. And one of the articles that I posted, something that's always challenging for me, is that we have to be real careful that we don't that we don't become so familiar with scripture that we assume things about scripture that aren't there or assume things about scripture um, that are there that, that maybe we've, we've forgotten about. Um, and, and so John Piper wrote a really cool, good article just about the, the challenge of us going to scripture with the intent of, of seeing it for what it says and understanding God's revelation for how he's revealed himself and not placing assumptions onto the text, onto the text based on things that we've been taught previously, um, things that we've heard previously, things that we've kind of read back into the text that maybe aren't there. And so I wanted to um, give us some time this morning to look at Genesis 3 specifically. And I want us to break up into groups and, and have somebody designated in the group just to read through Genesis 3 within your group. And I want you individually to maybe jot down some things that you thought were in Genesis 3 that after looking at it word for word maybe isn't there. Or maybe some things that you're surprised to find Now that you've read through it again that maybe you didn't realize was there because Genesis three is a very familiar passage. It's the fall. It's Adam and Eve. It's Satan. It's the it's the fruit. It's the temptation. It's real easy for us to assume that, well, I know how this flows. I know the story. I know what happens to where I feel like I don't even have to go and read through it myself. And so I do want us to pause and step back and read through it intentionally ...with the fact that we don't want to be so familiar with it that we miss something that's intentionally put there by God for us to learn this morning. And so what I'd like for us to do is to break up into groups, just small groups of of five to ten even, um, just people that are around you. And I want you to maybe designate one or two, three people that can just kind of read through the text together. We don't have to ask any questions, nothing that will make you feel uncomfortable, but just an opportunity to read through God's Word together this morning. And then you personally make some notes... Uh, either mental notes or just jot some things down. Things that maybe jump out, surprise you, things that you didn't remember that were in the text or things that you thought were in the text that maybe, now that we've read through it, don't appear to be there. Um, so I want to invite you to do that. Find some people around you. For those that are members, uh, if you see some people around you that you know are visiting, be sure to include them and make them feel welcome. Use it as an opportunity to introduce yourself and get to know each other briefly. And then spend some time reading through Genesis chapter 3. And then we're going to use that as a springboard for our discussion this morning um, and what God wants to teach us. So go ahead and do that. Break up. I'll give you a few minutes to do that, and then we'll come back together. All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, you've got kids that are part of our younger kids class. They can be dismissed to the back. Genesis chapter 3 is such an important text for us moving forward. We've spent a great deal of time looking at God's creation in Genesis 1 and and God really putting things into order and and establishing some plans and direction in Genesis chapter Uh, 2. We've seen some of the implications that that has for us in the ways that we work and how we relate to each other in marriage, how we relate to each other just as um, men and women and God's design behind that. And then Genesis chapter 3 really sets the stage for the remainder of the story, a story that we know that we we, we saw from the New Testament that, that points to the fact that God has always had a plan in place for Christ to come and die for man's sins. And so Genesis 3 is not uh, where God's plans go wrong, and then he has to come and, and, and adjust and, and and fix things. While he does come in and fix sin, he doesn't have to fix his plan, because his plan all along was for Christ to be glorified by coming as our sacrifice. Um, And so Genesis 3 is is such an important uh, chapter of Scripture because it really is necessary, a correct understanding of it is necessary if we're going to have an accurate worldview. For us to really understand why the world is the way that it is, so how we view the world, for us to really view it properly and accurately, it necessitates us understanding what takes place in Genesis chapter 3. And this is where evolution really deviates and, and really cannot answer important questions about the origins of evil and why mankind is bent towards evil actions. Um, and we understand that the, the tragedy that we see around us, the conflict, the chaos, the disorder, the pain, the struggle, the discord, the death that we see around us all make sense in light of what happens here in Genesis chapter 3. The downward spiral of humanity that's described in Romans chapter 1, where mankind turns from God and turns towards creation and worships creation and God gives them over to these sinful desires and it leads to all types of sinful actions and all types of sinful consequences. All of that's traced to our understanding of Genesis chapter 3. It's a passage that when you read through it and look at it, it can come across as a child's fable as a as a story as a as a parable as something that didn't truly happen and yet when we look into the new testament we find authors that treat this passage treat this account as a as a historical event in John chapter 8 verse 44 Jesus is talking and he says in relationship to Satan he says You were of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus traces Satan's behavior and Satan's uh, lies and and murderous activity back to the beginning. In Romans chapter 5, Genesis chapter 3 is referenced, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. In First Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness With self control. And then, even in Revelation, there's references back to to Satan as the the, the serpent of old, as the serpent from the beginning. And so, these authors continually refer back to these events as historical events events that truly happened, events that have truly shaped the future of mankind and the future of our world. So, as we look into Genesis chapter 3, it's important that we approach it in confidence concerning its accuracy and its authority for our lives today. In Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The stage is set here uh, for a temptation and and ultimately what we know to be a fall. But as we read through it this morning together in our groups, anything that, that stood out to you that um, You had forgotten was there or you thought was there, but then in, in, in a second glance realized that it's not contained in the text like maybe you originally thought. Anything that, that kind of stood out to you in reading through it together this morning? Anything at all? Yeah, just all the way through. <coughs> mm-hmm right yep right okay yeah there's mentions of both trees in Genesis chapter two um and then there's there's uh an absence of the discussion of the tree of life as Satan and and eve are talking and then the tree of life pops back up at the end of the the chapter we're not we're not told if adam and eve are are made aware of the tree of life and any abilities that that it portrays through eating of it we're not told that any of that was communicated to them it may have been it may not have been um we'll discuss more about the tree of life as we get into the text both this week and next week other things that kind of stood out to you in, in reading through it this morning <clears throat> mm-hmm. hmm Yep, so Adam's with Eve um, as this conversation plays out and we see him stand back passively and, and not fulfill his responsibilities of protection and leadership. Mhm. Mhm. Yep. Yeah. There's accusations by Adam on both accounts that it's Eve's fault and ultimately God's fault for creating Eve the way that He did. You know, I find it interesting that that the name Satan or the or the the, the proper names are, are not mentioned here at all in Genesis chapter three. We're simply told about a serpent, um, and it's something that through further progressive revelation down the road we kind of look back into the text and see satan's presence here we see the the concept of serpent applied to satan down the road and for whatever reason we're not really told moses doesn't choose to identify satan here in this passage so if you're just kind of reading through this the first time you don't you don't know that this is satan per se you don't you don't identify that you see an evil presence here you assume that there's more going on here than just a talking animal. We know that animals, at least today, don't talk. Um, There's speculation that maybe they did in the Garden of Eden. Maybe that was part of paradise given in Genesis chapter 2. If they weren't talking, it would seem shocking to Eve for the snake to start talking. And so there may be reason to believe that it wasn't shocking for her because they were prone to have conversations with the animals and that this is just a natural... Uh, byproduct of sin that they no longer communicate we don't know we're we're not told moses doesn't delve into a lot of the details here about why the snake is talking and and uh, how satan did did satan uh, possess an actual serpent's body or did satan simply present himself as a serpent those details were not really given Um, But what we are told is that he he at least um, is is in the form of a snake, whether he possesses the actual body of a snake or just presents himself that way, um, that he's presented as one of God's creations, uh, an animal that Adam and Eve were supposed to um, have control over. They were supposed to subdue. They were supposed to rule over and instead allow the the creation of God to lead them. Um, Anything else that that stood out to you as different or not there? mm Yeah, yeah we're not even told i mean we we read into it we assume it but we're really not even told that an animal died here we're simply told that that skin clothing was made um you know we assume we, we know that the sacrifice system comes later and so we understand that 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 bloodshed is necessary for the atonement of sins um but yeah it's it's almost just kind of mentioned real quick sometimes we we, we elaborate and throw some additional details in there as to what type of animal it was, that type of thing. But it's just it's not there in the text as far as specific details. Um, you know, I, I find it interesting, too. We, we often assume that, that Adam and Eve walked and talked with God in the garden at a specific time in the day because we see God show up in the cool of the evening, and they know that he's there, and they hide from him. But once again, we're not told that that was a a habit that they were necessarily doing regularly. I mean, it's something that we just kind of assumed. The reason I think this is important, the reason I wanted us to do this and kind of wrestle with the fact of what do we assume about the text and what's really in the text is that when Satan questions Eve about God's word, she paraphrases, she gives her interpretation, her understanding of what God has said, and what we're going to find is that she she leaves some things out, she adds some things that God never said, and ultimately her paraphrase gets her in trouble and leads her into sin. So she thought she was familiar with God's word. Um, she doesn't she doesn't refer to Adam and try to get clarification. Hey, this this snake is asking me about what God has commanded us. And I want to clarify and make sure that I've got this right. She doesn't go to God and get clarification about what he has said. She paraphrases. She says, this is what God told us. It's it's inaccurate to what God really said in Genesis chapter 2. We're not told if Eve directly got that from God or if Adam had simply passed that down. Maybe Adam passed it down wrong to her. Regardless, she has incorrect understanding of what God said, and it leads her into sin. And I think it's important for us as we move forward into this year that as we make commitments again to study God's Word, to be in God's Word, that we truly want to know what God's Word has to say, and that we don't, um, we don't manipulate it into saying what we think it says or what we want it to say, what we believe it says, but that we're, we're students of the Word, that we know God's Word, not just from a paraphrasing standpoint, you know, comparing it to the memorizing standpoint, that we really know God's Word, that we've really hidden it in our heart, so that it can really be effective in our life. Because Eve's understanding, she, she lacked some understanding. And I think it got her into trouble when she really begins to converse with the serpent. So going back to Genesis chapter 3, God has set the stage in Genesis chapter 2 by providing everything necessary for mankind's joy. Remember we said that that God anticipated every need, every want, and he has provided for Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. He has set the stage. He has given them Everything that they could need to eat, everything to drink. He's given them purpose and meaning in life. He's given them jobs to do. He's given them clear instructions about what they can and can't do. Clear communication given to Adam and Eve. He's anticipated every need, and the stage has really been set for them now to put their trust in him. And it's the same stage that's been set for us each day of our life. All right, It's the same stage that was set for Job. Job had an opportunity to put God's glory on display for all of creation based on how he responded to events and circumstances in his life. And it's the same stage that's set for us moving forward into 2015. That you have a calendar year ahead of you where you can maximize God's glory based on how you handle circumstances and temptations and trials that you face. Showing that God is better than anything this world has to offer. And that's the stage that was set for Adam and Eve. They were—they had the opportunity as, as temptation came. And remember we said that that God said you need to guard this garden, which implied that there was a real threat, the possibility of evil coming to the garden. They had an opportunity to display God's glory, to put their faith and trust in him and what he had told them to do. And they failed that test. But God had set the stage providing everything they could possibly need. And then Satan comes to work against the joy of mankind. So God had set the stage by providing everything for mankind's joy. Satan comes to work against the joy of mankind. And what we find here are his methods where he lies, he misrepresents God, and he casts doubt upon God's word. Satan is seen here to be the the evil working behind the serpent. Uh, 2 corinthians eleven three revelation twelve nine are passages that that reference this and connect it to Satan. Satan, we know was a created fallen being. Look what it says now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the lord God had made don 't miss that that important point there at the very beginning. when Satan shows up, when evil shows up, it is presented as not a rival. God, not an equal to God, not a fellow God. This is a created being. This is this is a being that is in subjection to the creator of the universe. That they can only do anything that the creator of the universe allows him to do. So Satan is not an anti-God, he's not a rival to God, he is a created being. And he shows up in this form. As a created being, and it's important to note that Satan is forced to be in complete subjection to God. He's allowed time on this earth to push his agenda, but his agenda is always submitted to God's overall plan. Some passages you may want to jot down just to to reference Satan and his fallen state Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Luke chapter 10, verse 18, talks about. Uh, Jesus seeing Satan cast out of heaven in Revelation twelve three through 4. Talks about the, uh, the third of the angels that, that most likely came with Satan at that time. Satan shows up here and the glory of God is maximized as he turns creation back to himself. So, so, so God planned for this. And so Satan shows up. He's crafty. He's deceitful. The stage has been set for God's glory. Adam and Eve don't give God glory. They don't trust in him. But what we find is that God uses Satan and his sinful choices. So Satan chooses to to abandon his position in heaven, comes to this earth, continues to try to wreak havoc, tries to to turn creation against God. God permits Satan's existence. God permits Satan and, and his agenda to happen. Ultimately, because God gets the glory every single day as he turns the offspring of Eve back to him. Every single day in in light of Satan and his existence. So sometimes people ask, why would God allow Satan to continue to exist? If God's a good God, why does he not just extinguish evil? Because God gets glory every single day when Satan, who thought he had won here in the garden, when God continues to turn back individual after individual to him. As God works in their hearts, the Holy Spirit regenerates individuals, rescues them back to him. God gets glory every single day as Satan has to watch that happen. And it's got to be agonizing for Satan who thinks that he's won. As we see this events unfold here in Genesis 3. Thinks that he's won and constantly has to see day in and day out that God gets the victory. That God gets the victory. Satan's strategy with Eve here. Begins to unfold as he begins to converse with her. <clears throat> says that he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? His strategy is to attack the authority, the accuracy and the acceptability of scripture. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He first wants to question whether God actually said anything. Did God actually say this? It may be that Satan understood that that the, the the prohibition had really come to Adam, and then Eve is created later, and maybe Adam passes that on to her, so she wasn 't there she didn 't get it directly from God potentially and so eve Eve is questioning this now because Satan has, has planted this thought in her head. Did God actually say this did, did, did these these understandings these these commands that you 've gotten did they really come? From God, he questions the authority, questions the accuracy, and he's eventually going to question the acceptability of these things to Eve. He came to Eve and he cast doubt and mistrust within her thought, within her through his question. The gist of all temptation is to cast doubt upon God's word by subjecting it to human judgment. Did God really say it and do we really have to do it? It's the same ploy that's used today when temptation comes our way. Did God really say this and do we really have to do it this way? It's something that if if Satan can can cause God's word to be subjected to human judgment, where we wrestle with it and really try to determine what did God mean? Did God really mean it? Do we really have to do it? Then temptation has won its way into our life. Because we're now questioning God's word. We're questioning what God really actually said. While God's command stress the positive satan's suggestion and even eve's response highlight the negative if we go back to genesis chapter two we see where this command is actually given in verse 15 of chapter two then the lord god took the man and put him in the garden of eden to work it and keep it and the lord god commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. He says you can eat of every tree except for one. So so God, when he gives the command, he highlights the positive aspects. Every tree that's in this garden is available to you to eat. You can eat of it freely. You can eat of it whenever you want to. There's just one tree that you can't eat of. Now, we said that the tree's not evil in and of itself, right? God created everything. God looks at his creation and says that it's good. It's even been speculated by some commentators that the tree would have eventually been made available to them to eat. That potentially it was something that was to be deferred because it wasn't the right timing. And there are things in our life that, we're, that are withheld from us because it's not right for us at the certain time that eventually becomes available to us because it is the right time. And that may have been the case here with this tree. But regardless, God's emphasis is placed on all the trees that they can eat. Satan comes to Eve and highlights the fact God doesn't let you eat of just any tree, right? Well, 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 that's true. He said that we couldn't eat of any tree because we can only eat of all the trees except for one. But Satan's emphasis is on the fact that they can't eat of any tree in the garden because there is one that they can't eat of. And so his emphasis is on the negative. His emphasis is on the prohibition that God has given. God says, Every tree, eat of it freely. Satan says, You can't eat of every tree, can you? He wants God to be seen as restrictive, narrow, unloving, strict, one who deprives man of enjoyment and pleasure, a God who is cruel and uncaring, a God who is evil and untruthful, ultimately, a God that is not good that that's satan's ploy here is if is if he can question god's goodness behind god's commands then it leads eve now to question whether she should really obey god if god is not good then why should i obey his commands That, that he's withholding good from me now we know that james promises that every good gift comes from above And yet what Satan is introducing here is the idea that that good can be obtained when we're detached from God. That good can be sought and obtained without God's assistance. Whereas scripture tells us that everything that's good comes from God. So, So Satan plants this thought, this question within Eve's mind. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Eve responds and says, We can eat tree. we can eat the fruit of the trees. But she drops the idea of every tree. Like that, that's noticeably missing from her response. She says, We can eat fruit in the garden. Remember, God, when he gave the command, said, You can eat of every tree, every fruit that's available except for one. She minimizes God's provision and just simply says, there's fruit that we can eat here. That's true. But there's one that we can't eat of, that we can't even touch. She really begins to emphasize the restrictive aspect of God's provision, adding to the restriction as well. That there's one that we can't eat of and we can't even touch it. And we don't know where that part came from. Did she she hear that from Adam? Where did did that addition come from? We're not sure. But she adds to God's command. She minimizes even the name of the tree, right? She says there's a a tree in the midst of the garden that we're not allowed to eat of. If if you verbalize the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, to me, just in saying that, it conjures up some concern. that That even the word evil is present there. She just simply says, we can eat tree. We can eat fruit of the trees. There's there's one in the midst of the garden that we're not able to eat of. We can't even touch it because we might die. Which also minimizes the the uh, the judgment that God had promised. The the language that she uses here, "lest you die," implies that it wasn't a certain thing. Whereas God had said, "You will surely die in the day of you eat that you eat of it." She minimizes the coming judgment, the the danger. In eating of the tree, she minimized god 's goodness and judgment and maximized his prohibitions. She paints god as a as a God who is less generous and more demanding than what he had really communicated here's here 's the the issue too is that Eve had experienced all of god 's goodness. Remember in Genesis chapter two, we said that God had set the stage where he provides goodness to Adam and Eve and demonstrates that he's the source of the goodness, right? So he takes Adam and creates him and then puts him in the garden so that, so that Adam understands the garden came from God. He creates Adam alone so that Adam sees that he's alone, sees that he needs a companion, looks all through the animal kingdom and can't find a companion, and then God creates a companion for him. So so time after time God shows his goodness and provision to Adam and Eve so that there's an understanding there that God is good so that when doubt is placed before her she should have been assured based on her past experiences with God that this isn't true that God is good Eve responds and takes debate though and starts to maximize God's restrictiveness and minimize his goodness, you don't you don't you don't read Eve's response and, and feel like it's just oozing with faith. Right. Like you don't read her response and say, oh, she's going to win this. like She's get, she's going to be victorious over this temptation. Right. You don't see a, a, a drastic response of faith here, which got me thinking as I was studying this, how could have Eve responded here? Like, let's speculate for a minute. When when this question is posed to Eve, what would have been a potential Better response from Eve in this situation, given her understanding of God's goodness. What are some things that Eve maybe could have responded instead to Satan, which would have oozed with victory, which demonstrated faith and trust in God? What are some, some ideas, some things that maybe she could have responded with? Okay. Gratitude to God, what else? Okay. It's good. Yep, she could have taken the serpent to God, let them work it out. Yeah. 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 I mean, you'd like to see a picture of Eve here with her mouth just stuffed full of fruit because she's so busy with all the trees that she can eat from. Satan shows up and says, can you eat from any tree? Pretty much. Pretty much I can eat from any tree that I want to. There's one, and I haven't even gotten to it yet, right? Like it's in the middle of the garden. I've been working my way from the outside in. I'm so stuffed. I'm so full of all this good fruit. Because remember, in Genesis 2, the description is that every tree was good to the eyes. That every fruit was desirable. That it wasn't that God created all these puny green vegetables that nobody wanted to eat, and then in the middle was a tree that was, was growing s'mores, right? Like, it wasn't like, hey, I'm over here eating my broccoli, but man, does that tree of s'mores look good, right? Like, every tree was good to the eye. Every fruit was desirable. There were so many responses that Eve could have had here when Satan questions. So, so this God created you and he doesn't let you eat of every tree no he doesn't but he lets us eat of everyone but one and what a good god that is because he could have restricted me to eat from only one tree because that's really all i would have needed right like i don't i don't need variety i don't need choice i simply needed food to sustain me and god could have created me simply with one tree to pick from There's all kinds of responses that Eve could have given here that would have pointed to the glory of God and his goodness. Goodness that she had already experienced. And yet she takes the bait and says, you know what, you're right. I can't eat of any tree. There's one that I'm not allowed to eat of. And I don't know why. But you've got me thinking now, why can't I eat of that tree? There's no response of faith here by Eve. You remember Jesus responded to similar temptation when Satan comes to him in the wilderness by saying, it is written. Right? Jesus doesn't debate with Satan. He says, it's written. The debate has already been settled. There's, there's no conversation to have here. right? Jesus quotes directly from Scripture when Satan comes to him with temptation. There's no paraphrasing. There's no, here's what I think it means. He says, this, is, this has already been written. Like There's no discussion here. There's nothing to really dialogue about. There's no choice to be made. It's written. It's done. It's settled. Right? So, so Jesus wins the victory in the New Testament that Adam and Eve lose here in Genesis chapter 3. An implication that, that I think would be good for you to write down. We need to make sure we feed our kids with the goodness of God. So they can respond appropriately to temptation. Because here's where that we drop the ball. We can be real good at communicating God's commands and God's laws and God's rules. We can be real good about communicating our family laws and rules and standards and disconnect them from the goodness behind it. And when all we preach and teach is law and rules without the connection to the goodness, it breeds rebellion. It breeds rebellion because God has placed a, a, a command upon Adam and Eve that, that's a good command, and it's in light of all the other goodness that he's given them. But Eve lose sight, loses her sight on his goodness, begins to question his goodness, and that leads her to disobedience because in her mind, I'm disobeying a God that's not good to me. And as our kids are, are, are being raised and they're hearing God's laws and we're teaching God's commands, if we disconnect it from the goodness, all they hear is prohibitions, things that I'm not allowed to do, things that the world says are very good, things that will satisfy, things that will give you what you long for. And all they hear is I'm not allowed to have it. And there's no goodness communication behind it. And our kids need to hear about God's goodness just as much as they need to hear about his commands for our life. Because when they connect the two, it gives them the motivation to obey. Because they're obeying a God that's good, which means when he commands something, it comes from good motives and intentions. And so it's very important that we keep those two connected. Eve loses sight of the goodness, and it leads her to disobedience. Satan attacks the goodness of God. He also attacks God's sovereignty, his control, his justice. Because Satan tells her, you won't die. The serpent said to the woman in verse 4, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan says, be free and do what you want. You won't die. He challenges the accuracy of scripture here. He also challenges God's holiness. So he challenges God's sovereignty and his justice. He says, look, God's not good and he's not in control. So, so he's, he's told you not to do this because he's not good. He wants to withhold good from you. If you go ahead and do it, it's okay because God's not in control of this situation. You're not going to die. And then he goes a step further and says, you can be like God if you do it, which is a challenge against God's holiness. God's holiness is not just simply that he's without sin. It's that he's completely separate and different from his creation. And so Satan offers something that's completely impossible and a complete challenge to God's holiness. And what's interesting is that this is obviously the same thing that Satan desired. right? He's in heaven. He desires to be God, desires to take over. There's been speculation, too, that maybe Satan's Uh, Evil intent is inspired by the fact that when creation is done and God is finished, that God has elevated Adam and Eve to image status, right? That they are created in God's image, something that the angels were not created in. And so Satan, who desires to be like God, can't be and looks and sees that part of God's creation is as close to being God as you can be. Created in God's image. Remember we said that the reason the Israelites were not to make images of God is because they were created in the image of God. They were the image of God. And so Satan comes here and says, you can be like God. And what Eve has forgotten, what Eve has missed, is that she's already created in the image of God. He promises her something, really, that she already has. As much as she can have. Right? She can't be God. But she is created as much like God as she can be already. He attacks God's holiness. You can be like him. God wants to keep you from your full potential. And then the problem really sets in that that Satan has already placed these thoughts and doubts in her mind. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve allows herself to gaze and to reason with the sin. We're not told that when this conversation starts that they're in the presence of the tree, right? Odds are that they're probably not. Because if you're told not to eat of it, she's probably not around it. But as the conversation starts... It may be that they're traveling in the midst of the conversation. Let's go, let's go see that tree that we're talking about. Let's get a better perspective about this this conversation that we're having. And it says that when their dialogue is done, that she's in position where she can gaze upon the tree. And she, and she begins to reason and reckon here as to whether this is a good idea or not. And she's already past the point of victory because she's now reasoning with herself about this sin. And 99% of the time, this leads to failure when the temptation has come to this point, where we're reasoning and reckoning and justifying and excusing behavior. Rationalization sets in. It says that when she determined that it was good. Now, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit. The same wordage there is used for when she looked at the fruit and saw that it was good. It's the same wordage used for when God looked at his creation and determined it to be good. She's now acting as though she is God. She's determining what's good for her. God has already declared what's good for her. She stepped out of that and stepped into a new position where she says, you know what? I'm going to determine what's good for me. She's determined to act like God now. In James chapter 1, we see this same type of temptation play itself out with us as well. And it's a warning to us today. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The wisdom that Eve desired could have been given to her by God. James reminds us that, that if we lack wisdom, we can ask of God who gives. The implication here is that ultimately Eve's lack of confidence in God's word opened her up to the deception of Satan. When we doubt God's word, we are prepared to deny God's word and ultimately disobey God's word. She sought no wisdom from her husband. She sought no wisdom from God. She was going to do what she wanted to do. It's also interesting that she never questions the serpent as to whether he can be accurate on this. Right? Like God has told her that she'll die if she eats of it. He says, no, you won't. You'll be like God. She doesn't question that. She doesn't question her husband. There's no dialogue here. There's no seeking out God for further information She hangs on to what he says because it ultimately goes back to her not wanting to be under the authority of God. What she fails to realize is that she's putting herself under the authority of Satan. She's allowing Satan to lead her deceptively as he manipulates her to do what he wants her to do. There's immediate consequences that happen here as Eve makes this choice and gives to her husband who was with her. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Verse 7, the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This passage really starts, if you don't break it up, by chapters with verse 25 of chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then it goes right into the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. There's a play on words there. Um... Where, where they're, there's, they're, they, they sound really similar. The idea of Adam and Eve being naked and being okay with it, and the, the, the shrewdness of the serpent. The idea of, of, of them being innocent and Satan knowing exactly how to attack their innocence. So, so they're, they're open, they're exposed, and it's okay. There's no danger, there's no distrust. And yet, as soon as they partake of this, they realize something snaps inside of them where they're now fallen beings, and they realize that the other cannot be trusted. And immediately, there's an exposed feeling that immediately they feel like they've got to cover up, that they cannot trust their partner because they've seen now that their partner will choose themselves over anything else. And immediately, there's a desire to cover up. Their state of innocence is forfeited. They now feel shame. They recognize their nakedness. They immediately want to cover themselves with clothing. Their relationship to each other is harmed. The trust and care that they once trusted is no longer guaranteed. We also note that their relationship with God has been jeopardized. Their ties with God are now characterized by fear. It says in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves From the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There's fear. Because of their guilt and shame. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him where are you? And he said I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. Not to eat. As we come to this confession and punishment and assurance. It's important to note that God addresses Adam first. Remember, we said that that Satan's ploy was to attack the gender roles that God had established. And so rather than going to the head of mankind, rather than going to Adam, Satan usurps that authority and goes directly to Eve. But God reestablishes the gender roles that he had created and goes directly to Adam and holds him responsible. He had given the command to Adam, and so he goes to Adam seeking where things went wrong. The man responds in verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. <coughs> Adam justifies himself in two ways. One, he justifies himself by blaming God. He questions God's goodness and wisdom in his provision. We we kind of referenced this earlier. Adam is, is, is not directly saying it, but there's an underlying tone here where he's questioning God's wisdom in his provision of Eve. He's saying, the woman that you gave me, this can all really be traced back to you. It starts with you giving me this woman who then gives me the fruit. So Eve's questioned God's goodness before the sin. Adam continues questioning God's goodness by tracing it back to, to a flaw with God he says the woman that you gave me is responsible for this he justifies himself also by blaming eve he's willing to sever all ties with eve he's basically telling god find her guilty remember we said that these are the two extremes that men struggle with that the The extreme of being passive, where he stands by, he's with Eve all during this conversation with Satan, and he does nothing. He's the passive, lazy husband. And then immediately reverts to the abusive side, where when when things have gone wrong and it's known, God says, who's responsible for this? Adam says, it's my wife, and essentially says, kill her, right? Because that was the judgment, and he shows his abusive side by saying, It's her. It's her fault. If you're going to do anything, you take care of her. Kill her. She's responsible. So this isn't a tragic love story where, where Adam is choosing Eve and choosing sin because he wants to stay with his wife. It's all selfishly motivated. And when he's called out for it, he says, if anything, get rid of my wife. Take her. She is responsible. God doesn't comment on this. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't justify his actions. He simply moves down the line and addresses the woman verse 13 and the lord god said to the woman what is this that you have done the woman said the serpent deceived me and i ate eve justifies herself by blaming god's creation you'll note that the blame game is not a learned behavior right for those of us that have kids when we address issues with our kids we can see at a very early age the excuses and the deferring of responsibility to something else. The the lack of assuming responsibility for our actions. It's not something that kids have to learn. It's an ingrained part of their sin nature now. To to defer responsibility. To blame someone else for the action. It's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. I'm a, I'm a product of my environment. I'm a product of someone else's behavior. And it's important to note that this started with our, with our mother, with our father, and it's behavior that should not be tolerated in our life. The, the sign of a godly, mature man, a godly, mature woman, is someone who embraces responsibility for their actions, for their sin, and confesses it. This is what God's looking for. He's looking for a confession. And we're already seeing God's grace oozing all over this story because the fact that they're even alive and able to talk to God right now in the midst of their sin – is only by God's grace and mercy, because they should be off the planet at this point. And God is dialoguing with them and asking questions, not because he needs answers, but because he's allowing them. He's generating, hopefully, a confession, and all he gets is the blame game. Okay? But again, he doesn't address this with Adam and Eve. He moves right down the line to the serpent, but does not give the serpent opportunity to explain himself simply says in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God judges the serpent here. we're going to see God's grace in this punishment. First of all, we see it in humanity's survival, right? The fact that after all is said and done, Adam and Eve exit the garden alive. God's grace is seen in their survival. It's seen in the fact that God prophesies Satan's destruction. It's also seen in the fact that he prophesies that a redeemer is coming for victory, and then we ultimately see God's grace in that he makes salvation possible when he removes them from being able to eat of the tree of life, right? God assesses the situation at the very end and says, I don't want this to be a permanent situation, right? So Adam and Eve have willingly walked away from me, and if I, if I allow them to, we'll then eat of the tree of life, and this will stay permanent. And there will be no fix in this. And so God says, I'm not okay with this being permanent. I plan to save them. I plan to rescue them. And so God's goodness is seen in that he exits them from the garden. If they couldn't be trusted not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as innocent people, they certainly couldn't be trusted if he simply comes to them and says, I'm going to let you stay here, but don't eat of this tree because if you do, you'll live forever. Right? Like we would all give in to that temptation, right? We would love to find the fountain of youth where we don't die. Imagine being in an environment where every day you get up and you're like, well, there it is. If I went and ate it, I wouldn't wouldn't die. I would live forever. I'd be sinful, but I'd live forever. Right? God doesn't even give them a choice here. He says, you're out. I'm not going to let you make this mistake and cause this to be permanent because I do plan to make this not permanent. I plan to rescue you and save you. And so he forces them to exit. He starts with judging the serpent. The serpent is judged and cursed to crawl on the ground. Now, this is, this is where it gets a little, all right, are we talking about the snake? Are we talking about Satan and where, where does the judgment really fall here? And again, I'm not completely sure, right? We know that, that part of Satan's judgment from being cast out of heaven is that he has to walk here on this earth now. Like, he has to, he has to live here. And so there's some truth to the fact that, that Satan is forced to dwell here on this earth. We know that snakes crawl around on the ground. Were they in a different state prior to this? Maybe. Maybe. I'm prone to think that at some point that, that dragons roam this earth because they're consistent all over these early civilizations. Now, it could have been a species that just completely died off. It's possible that, that, that this is really the form of a dragon here that, that ends up being a snake when it's all said and done. I don't know. Kind of cool to think about, though, right? That this is really a dragon with wings and feet and a beautiful creature that no longer continues because of the sin that takes place. I don't know. We can speculate. I don't think there's any danger in speculating. If you want to call this a dragon that turned into a snake, I'm okay with that. So he judges the snake, um, cursed to crawl on the ground. He judges Satan. And he's informed of his imminent doom, his failure in his endeavors, and his final defeat is coming. All right, so On the belly you shall go, dust you'll eat, all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. This is more than just mankind is going to despise snakes now, right? Now, now a lot of us do. A lot of us want nothing to do with them. um, But there's more going on here. There's enmity between Satan and the woman. And here's what I really believe is going on here. Satan has, has led a third of the angels out of heaven with him. He's mounting an army to attack God in his glory. He now goes after God's crowning glory of creation. Feels like he's he's earned victory by swaying Adam and Eve to his side. In his mind, we didn't get a second chance. The angels didn't get a second chance. Adam and Eve aren't going to get a second chance. They are allowed to procreate. Angels aren't. So really, I've got the opportunity here to generate an army of of a mass amount because these two are going to procreate and continue to give me offspring that will follow me. And the possibility of redemption doesn't even enter into Satan's mind because he has no concept, no reference point for it. So he's completely shocked here when God comes in and says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the offspring. In fact, there's going to be one that comes from Eve that will ultimately crush your head. Romans sixteen twenty points to this prophecy and reminds us as an encouragement in the New Testament as believers, every single day we go to work this week and we fight sin and we battle. The encouragement to us the encouragement to us is that this is a temporary state. Look what Paul says in Romans sixteen, verse seventeen. I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Paul says, there are people out there that want to deceive you, that want to trick you, that want to teach you false doctrine. He says, don't listen to them and be reminded in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, there's imminent doom coming for Satan, and it's communicated to him here from the very beginning, when punishment is handed out. That his doom is near. Matthew eight twenty nine also. Grace is shown in Genesis three fifteen, as Adam and Eve are listening to this. There, there's a ray of hope that they must have felt. One, because Eve recognizes there's going to be offspring, which means I'm going to be around long enough to have children. There's a ray of hope that begins to to emanate into their hearts as they hear God speaking to the serpent and speaking victory over the serpent. The idea that there's going to be offspring. Genesis 3.15 is, is oftentimes referenced as the first mention of the gospel, the second Adam who would be victorious over the serpent. It's worth noting that in the Gospel of Luke, Luke connects Jesus' genealogy to Eve. He traces Jesus back to Eve and shows that Jesus is a descendant. He's an offspring. He's a seed of Eve. And then immediately after takes us to the wilderness where Jesus finds victory over Satan. It's not a coincidence. He's, he's, He's linking the fact that the one that we've been waiting for, this seed of Eve, That's coming to destroy Satan is the one that beats Satan in the wilderness when he too was tempted. God judges Eve next to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Woman will now experience pain in her childbearing. She will now also have a sinful longing to resist the authority of her husband. She will want to control through manipulation. The implication here is that her primary roles of helpmate and childbearer are now frustrated due to sin. It's a breakdown of the husband-wife relationship that while he was called to lead and she was called to help, she will now desire to lead him. And in return, he will have to rule over her. There will be conflict. There will be struggle in the marriage relationship. We see it constantly. Even in in God-fearing men and women that are married together, there's conflict in the marriage because of our sin. It's a result of the curse. The grace that's shown here, though, is that the human race will continue, that children will be born, and a victorious seed is to be longed for. God judges Adam next it says unto Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. There's cursed relationships for for Adam, for man. Man will have to rule over his wife. Rather than having her willingly submit to his leadership, and there's cursed labor. Man will toil against creation in order to have it yield the fruit that he needs to survive. The implication here is that his primary role as caretaker is now frustrated due to sin. Ultimately, God's communicating an altered life here, that creation is now mutated. There's disease, there's pain, and there's suffering. Right? There's things that start to take place now that weren't part of the creation in Genesis 2. There's, there's bacteria. There, there's disease that was already created but seemingly had some type of good purpose. And now creation is mutated to where these things become bad for Adam and Eve. They begin to attack their bodies. The thorns and thistles that were already there that had good purposes now attack the the, the role that Adam has to provide for his family. Creation has gone wrong. Romans chapter 8 that, that all creation is longing for Jesus to come back when, when he when he curses the serpent he says you're cursed more than every other beast, implying that every beast is cursed right that every part of creation is longing for redemption, longing to be fixed because when Adam and Eve choose this, it wrecks all of creation we close with this looking at the response because when you read this you see punishment punishment, bad news, bad news verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve. This seems like a weird time to be naming your wife, right? Like we've just committed the worst failure possible, right? We're, we're both really uh, confused because we don't have clothes and we've made some makeshift clothing. And I mean, everything's just really bad right now. And for whatever reason, Adam says, here's a great time to give you a new name, right? And it, and it seems kind of out of place. Like, why here? The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. What we see here is Adam's response to God. Him naming Eve demonstrates his faith in what God has said. When we get to the next chapter, we're going to have a similar situation play out where God has to confront Cain because of his behavior, and Cain's response is, "This punishment is too great for me." Like Cain is still resistant to God and says, "This is this is not fair. How you're handling this is not okay." Adam's response is We got off easy. Like, this looks bad, but the fact that we're even still here, the fact that that you're gonna give us victory way down the road, like this is good news. He recognizes gospel here and he turns to his wife and says, You're the mother of all living. You're you're the hope of the future of mankind. Because this promised seed is coming from you. So the reason this is here is because it's a response that Adam has to God's punishment. He responds in repentance. And responds in faith and trust and says, I accept the punishment and I see the hope behind the punishment. I see the goodness behind the punishment. God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way, to the tree of life. We see these cherubim pop up again with the children of Israel. These cherubim guard the presence of God in the tabernacle, in the temple. Their presence is there on the curtains. Their presence is there over the Ark of the Covenant. Cherubim that that no longer guard God's presence for us because the, 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 the veil has been ripped open and we have full access to God. But here we see God's presence closed off because of sin. We see temporary clothing given to Adam and Eve, a temporary sacrifice. God's forbearance starts here. Romans chapter 3, in God's divine forbearance, he passed over former sins, knowing that he would pour out his wrath on Jesus. The reason Adam and Eve are allowed to exit the garden is because God knows his wrath will be satisfied down the line. He banishes them from the garden to keep them from remaining in a sinful condition. The hope is that this doesn't have to be permanent. All right, a couple of application points, and then we're going to be finished for today. We're going to come back to this chapter next week um, and hit some other points because there's so much going on here. But I wanted to get through the entire narrative this morning um, for the sake of continuity. But some application thoughts. The scene in Genesis 3 is the same scene for us each day. Will we yield to sin or to righteousness? This scene in Genesis 3 is the same scene that we see every day in our life, a choice to yield to sin or to righteousness. We need to be mindful of the fact that Satan is attempting to lead us to destruction. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, we know that Satan is fighting against our desires to pursue Christ. 2 Corinthians two eleven. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. Or we are not ignorant of his designs. Right? Like he's still doing today what he was doing back then. He wants us to doubt God's word. Doubt the goodness of God. Doubt that God is in control. Doubt the accuracy of what God has said. These are the same things that Satan does today. We don't have to be outwitted by him. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses four and five for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but of divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of god and take every thought captive to obey christ secondly we are to find encouragement in god's plan of victory as we choose to participate in it we are to find encouragement in god's plan of victory As we choose to participate in it. So there's encouragement here. God has a plan of victory. But it's only encouraging if we're participating in it. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. In 1 John 3, 8, the same idea. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The hope that God gives here in Genesis 3 is that Satan's plans will be defeated, that Jesus is coming to destroy those plans. We find encouragement in that as much as we participate in that. As we strive to put to death sin in our life, we find encouragement knowing that Christ will win the ultimate victory. But as we yield to sin, as we give ourselves to sin, we work against the plans that are communicated in Genesis chapter 3, and there is no encouragement for us. And so the hope, the encouragement, is that we participate in God's plans. This last quote I want to give you, this is kind of the real thrust of everything that we've talked about this morning. A thorough knowledge of God's word and an unwavering trust in the goodness of God. So a thorough knowledge of God's word and an unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for staying motivated towards victory. A thorough knowledge of the Word of God, an unwavering trust in the goodness of God are absolutely essential for staying motivated towards victory. If we're going to keep pressing on as a church, if we're going to persevere to the end, it necessitates we have to know God's Word so that we know what God desires for us, and we have to trust that God is good. Because we can know God's Word and hate it, we can find God's commands burdensome. But when we trust in God's goodness, when we teach our kids that God is good and that he's given us instructions for life, those commands now lead us to life. They're not seen as restrictive. They're not seen as holding us back, withholding joy from us. When we really believe that God is all about our joy and that that joy is found in him and he gives us commands and instructions to lead us to him, then we stay motivated towards victory. We have to know God's word. And trust in his goodness. And those two things together motivate us to victory. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovereignhope.org. Again, that's www.sovereignhope.org.